Hello, and welcome to PW's LitCast, a podcast from Publishers Weekly. In each episode, we speak with authors of both fiction and nonfiction books. I'm Lenny Picker, and today I'm speaking with author Candace Robb, whose latest historical mystery, The River Woman's Dragon, is being published by Severn House, the sponsor of today's podcast. Good afternoon, Candace. Would you mind starting us off with a brief excerpt from your book? York, late April, 1375. As the days lengthened in the pale green leaves of early spring, delicate as an infant's fingers and toes, swelled to complete the forest canopy, a cruel visitor wound its way north along the roads and the waterways, sowing fear and sorrow. All knew of its coming, for the manqualm had called on a few unsuspecting households near York in the golden light of August past. It was merely a taste of what was to come as summer returned. Warm weather ripened it until it burst forth, spreading its seed. All were wary, looking for scapegoats on whom to hang the blame. Memory of the first visitation stirred a deep, ancient fear in the folk that lay dormant in good times, a fear of the river woman's healing skill. For she was ever the outsider, the wise woman living just beyond the city wall, on a rock in the ooze guarded by a dragon. She blamed no one for the shunning, having known the risk when she chose her path. Born of a long line of healing women on the moors, who served their community with ancient roots in the wild hills, she had been raised to follow in their footsteps, and then, in the midst of a year of disasters, a shabby friar intruded on their peace, his beady eyes slithering and twitching as he preached of a vengeful god who would continue to punish them with sicknesses that thinned their flocks and disastrous summer rains that ruined their crops until they cast out the healers and wise women, worshippers of Satan, daughters of Lucifer. Neither Magda nor any of her kin knew of such a being as this Satan or Lucifer, much less worshipped him, yet one by one, household by household, the folk turned on the healers, threatening to burn them all unless the women set aside their evil practices. It was a choice between what the friar called the dragon and the lamb, the Christian god. Magda was confused. The god he described sounded far more the dragon than the lamb, and he seemed indifferent to the welfare of his children. But her questions were received as attacks, and she was cursed for them. She chose banishment, walking off into the forest to the north, where she lived a long while in a community who practiced the old ways in peace. The only dragon they knew of was wise and fierce, a powerful protection. In time, she turned south, but she kept to her path of healing, ever wary of churchmen, especially in times of loss when their worship of a god of vengeance separated folk from their own wisdom about the earth and their bodies. She would bide her time, ready to depart if truly threatened. Over the years, she learned that eventually the clerics grew so fearful, they bolted their doors against the community and then the folk remembered she'd helped them in the past, once more seeking her aid. Thank you, Candace. Could you tell our listeners a little bit more about who Magda is? Magda is a, is a, um, a midwife, a healer. She's a character who, at the beginning of the series, is very much on the outside of the community, but as she befriends Owen Archer, my sleuth, and his wife, the apothecary Lucy Wilton, 
they bring her more and more into the community. And by this time, she she has been pretty much molded into the community again. And yet, with with this, with this, uh, it's a plague year. It was very strange writing this in the midst of our own plague. The people are frightened of her again, and that's what I wanted to get at at the beginning of this prologue. She is very skilled in healing, probably the most skilled of anyone in the city. And yet she really tries to focus most of her care on the poor and those who do not have access to the physicians and the barbers and the other midwives in the city. Candace, you referred to your uh, detective as Owen Archer. Could you speak a little bit about who he is, uh, what role he has in the story? Well, Owen is um, is by now um, considered captain of the city. He is the captain of the city bailiffs. And in a way, in what we know of of the law in the Middle Middle Ages, he would be what we would consider the the law in in York, um, underneath the sheriff and the mayor. And he is a former captain of archers, uh, Welsh. He came to York uh, about 12 years before this book begins. And he was working at that time for the Archbishop of York as his sleuth or spy. Over time, he has married and become part of the city, and he's had so many successes that the people of York trust him whenever something happens, they go to him for help. And without spoiling the plot, can you just tease our listeners a little bit about the mystery that he investigates in this book? Well, what happens in this book is that a... um, I don't want to use the term that I use in the book because people might not understand it. But the the man who is the representative of a merchant in York is found dead in the river. And Magda is the one who finds the body. And then they find out that the last person who saw him alive was possibly Magda. And with all the um, fear that is building in the city, from the pestilence returning, people begin to fear that Magda may have done something. She may have killed this man. But it's not most of the people who believe it. It's a particular person who is spreading these rumors. And no one needs to find out who that person is and what their motivation is and who actually murdered this man before more deaths occur. So, Candace, is the idea of having uh, a pestilence in New York uh, as part of the plot, is that an idea that you had before the COVID pandemic? Yes, it was. And and believe me, when things started heating up just as I was working on this book, I wanted to scrap this plot and write about something else. But I had promised a friend who died the Christmas before I started writing this that I would write this book. And I just felt, well, maybe it's meant to be. And strangely, it helped me through the experience because Magda is a very grounding character for me to write. 
she is someone who manages to balance her emotions and just do what's necessary in the moment. And in writing her and being in her voice, I was really able to stay in that space often. So it actually was quite um, cathartic for me. Um, and it also showed me that what I had always read about what happens to a community when there's this fear of serious illness moving among them um, is not just, you know, in the medieval period. It's we still respond that way today. So if we could take a step back and if you could talk a little bit about how this series originated all those years ago. Oh, wow. Well, I had, um, I had completed uh, most of my study toward a doctorate and, um, and then I left graduate school. Now, what I'd been studying was medieval literature and history, and I wanted to combine the two. So after I was working as a technical writer, I just continued doing my reading in, in medieval period. And I was really fascinated with the idea of archers and how very strong they are. And one thing led to another, and I was reading about apothecaries. And the original book was, well, it actually started as a short story about Lucy Wilton, the apothecary, trying to handle all the work in the apothecary while her husband is ill. And it grew from there. Um, I wanted to talk about the people in a city. I didn't want a book that was just about, you know, the lords and ladies and the kings and queens. I wanted to talk about the middle class that's rising in the 14th century. So this seemed like a great place for me to set it. Not to mention that I love the city of York, so I love the excuse to go there and do research. Let me just follow up on, on the last comment. What did setting the series in York enable you to do that had you set the series in London around the same time period, you would not have been able to do? Um, I think that, that I can create more of a close community in a city the size of York. Um, at that time, it was about a third of the size of London, maybe even smaller than that. And so I felt that not only would I have this pretty close-knit community. I mean, it's still a big city. It's the second, sometimes the third largest city in York in the Middle Ages, depending on who is doing the counting and what part of the 14th century it is. And there was an archbishop who is a very powerful man in the city. There were the, the wool merchants who were very wealthy. Um, there's the Yorkshire itself surrounding it, so I could I could take Owen out into the beautiful countryside of Yorkshire. It just all really appealed to me much more than setting it in London. And what about the 14th century in particular spoke to you? Geoffrey Chaucer. <laughs> um, not, I mean, that's partly true, that he woke me up to just how, how real um, the people were to us now. A lot of human nature hasn't changed. But I also liked the idea of in this century, this is when the middle class is truly becoming into its own. And 
that was my interest in writing more about everyday people, um, women who were shopkeepers, women who were brewers, men who were tanners and toyers and merchants and longshoremen and all of these people have such rich stories to tell. And that's what I wanted to focus on more than, um, as I said, than, than the upper class. And did that uh, development of or progress in terms of the middle class in Britain, was that paralleled in other European countries or other parts of the world? Or was there something special about uh, Britain at the time? Oh, no, I think it, I think it's pretty much um, across Europe. In fact, I think some areas like um, um, parts of the low countries were, um, so I'm talking about, you know, Flanders and, uh, or rather the Flemings and, um, the Dutch and the, uh, that area in there, they had more of a middle class, um, before and power in the middle class before the British. But, um, and I think it's a really strong period for merchants. What did you find to be your most valuable resources for doing your research? Mm. The city of York itself, for one thing, and the Center for Medieval Studies that's part of the University of York, wonderful historians and archaeologists and um, and people who, who study the literature of the medieval ages are all concentrated in um, at the Center for Medieval Studies in York, and I know so many of them, and they're great resources for me, I ask them. You know, what about this and what about that? And they, they send me to where I need to find it or they give me the information. It's, um, I think the people that I've developed is the networking that I've done has been the greatest asset. And just walking the streets, I get inspired. And over the course of the entire series, are there one or two things from the research that you've done, uh, tapping into this network that really surprised you, really it was something you didn't expect to find or learn about the period in the city? Mm. Ooh, I need to think about that. Um, there are always new things to learn. I, uh, um, For this book, one of the things that I found fascinating was just learning about, um, because Magda is being accused essentially of being um, a sorcerer or uh, or a witch, and it's just sort of the beginning of that idea um, at this period in the late 14th century. And just to see, I've, I've studied how this idea in the church essentially developed. That was that was very interesting for me. But I think what what's um, what has surprised me as well is how difficult it actually was to become a citizen of the city. I mean, we we don't think of that in um, in modern cities. We're all citizens of a city, but, but it's a very specific designation. Um, those are the people who have some say in the government, can stand for offices in the city government, and most of the time they're they're fairly wealthy. Uh, they have to be sponsored. You can't just move into York at the time and become a citizen of the city. Candace, is there something about uh, life in Britain in the late Middle Ages that you think people 
have the most misconceptions about, really don't understand? Oh, many things. But um, uh, I suppose if I were going to name two, one of them is how how filthy people think the cities were. And actually, there were all sorts of codes and restrictions, and people had to clean the the street in front of their shops where they were fined. And they were actually pretty proud of the hygiene in the cities. And it's a Victorian idea that um, everything ha must have been better in Victorian England, so it must have been absolutely filthy in England. I mean, hygiene, according to our our hygienic standards, would be very questionable. But for what they understood, they tried to be very clean. And the other thing is that women did not have any any business. Um, they couldn't own a business. They couldn't run a business. And they certainly could. It was a little trickier. Um, but women in the middle class were actually much freer to trade and, and to live on their own than um, the women of the of the nobles, which I found very fascinating. What led you to make the choice to have Owen Archer be Welsh? Because he was, I mean, really, it was because he was an archer, but also um, in the tradition of the sleuth in a crime series, uh, you know, starting with Sherlock Holmes, that the idea is of somebody who is sort of outside the society. Um, they are coming into the society and learning about um, the social structure and who's important and what's considered a crime as the reader is. And I wanted to do that. So I had him come in as a stranger and as a stranger with an accent and and an eye patch and a rather scarred face, you know, who seems threatening and not at first somebody that people look at and think is trustworthy. I wanted to give him that challenge so that he would really need to dig and make careful connections in the city. And through his doing that, the reader would learn all about how the city works. And uh, a final question for you, Candace. You uh, referred to this earlier. You spent, I think, about 10 years as a technical writer and editing scientific publications. Can you talk about what that experience taught you that you've been able to apply to your mystery fiction? Oh, that really taught me to be very curious and ask questions. I was working with uh, scientists in ocean physics and and uh, polar studies that went up on the ice, and they were um, mechanical engineers building equipment. And I'm writing about what they're doing. So I had to get really curious about how things work, uh, repeat to them what I understood. I, I had to get curious about um, what they mean when they're talking about acoustics underwater, what kind of waves. Um, sound waves they are, uh, what sort of, there are all these different designations of ice, what kind of ice it is that they're seeing. And just all of that detail taught me to dig, dig, dig and find out the technical details about things and the particulars. And that's, that's what people find so fascinating. That's what I find so fascinating when I'm reading about a different place or a different time. Thanks for your time today, Candace. And 
Thank you, listeners. The book again is Candace Robb's The River Woman's Dragon from Severn House. Please join us again soon for the next LitCast. <laughs>